Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. And for those of us that are still in here, we are going to be continuing our series through the life of David called A Man After God's Own Heart. And uh, if you uh, are just jumping in with us, we have some bookmarks out at the Welcome Center you're welcome to grab. They have a reading plan on them to help take you through the life of David over the course of this series. You don't have to feel bad if you're jumping in late. You can jump in in the middle of things and, and, uh, and read along with us over these next few weeks as we, as we dig into the life of David to see how God moves uh, throughout his life. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel, and it is the story of David and Goliath, as you might know. And it might be a bit presumptuous of me to assume that I have anything to teach anyone about the story of David and Goliath. Because my guess is, even if you are just now finding out that the story of David and Goliath is a story that comes in the Bible, comes to us from the Bible, that you've heard the expression David and Goliath at some point in your life. I mean, it it brings to mind images of the U.S. hockey team beating the Soviet Union in 1980. It brings to mind images of schools you have never heard of in the NCAA tournament taking down the major colleges, major college basketball programs in our nation. It is a story for underdogs, a story that no matter the odds, never count out the little guy because you never know David can take down Goliath. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story from every angle more times than you would even care to count. Uh, You've maybe heard the song or sang it as a kid. I'm not going to make us do that right now, but we could. Uh, We even know from popular culture, this is a popular story, and it has been for centuries. I mean, artists have been recreating pictures of David and Goliath for years. We have so much great art that uh, helps us understand this story like this one up here on the screen. We're in church. I had to try to keep it appropriate a little bit. That wasn't necessary for this morning, but I wanted you to have a laugh out of it because it made me laugh and I thought it would be helpful. But this story of David and Goliath is a story about David standing up in the face of impossible odds and coming out victorious. It is a great story. But when you actually sit down and read 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think it's interesting that you find that in the midst of this long chapter, there's very little time spent on the actual battle itself. Uh, 1 Samuel 17 is over 50 verses long, and yet the battle between David and Goliath takes up only about four of those verses. Uh, David defeating Goliath, uh, sometimes when we think about it as if it's an action movie and the confrontation between David and Goliath is the climactic final scene, but really when you read 1 Samuel 17, it's like a footnote thrown in along the way of, oh yeah, by the way, David took down Goliath. So what does that mean? It might mean a whole lot of things, but if nothing else, it means that the story of David and Goliath is not ultimately about David or Goliath. It's ultimately a story about the God David worships. It's a story about how David's understanding of his God is different from everyone around him and their understanding of the gods that they worship. It's a story about David, a man after God's own heart, even at this young age, trusting in God, even when no one else does. 
And that is what drives this story forward. That is what leads David to fight God's battle on God's terms and experience God's victory. So no matter how many times you've heard the phrase David and Goliath or read this story, my ask of you this morning as we walk through this chapter is to keep an eye on how God is moving so that we can see how God might move through us. I want to walk through five scenes of this story, even though we're not going to spend the same amount of time on each one, but I think they're helpful for us to walk through the whole story and see the point that this actual story of Scripture is wanting us to see. So first... Uh, The first scene, we're going to meet Goliath, and then the second scene, we're going to meet David, and then in the third scene, David is going to meet Goliath, and then in the fourth scene, David is going to meet King Saul, and then in the fifth scene, Goliath will meet David. And I would repeat all that again, so you really got it in there, but I would get confused saying it, so it's easier probably for us to just start reading with this first scene. Uh, Starting at verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 11, where we are introduced to Goliath. The text says, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. And assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesh Demim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. As you read throughout this section of the Old Testament, Israel is consistently at war with this nation of the Philistines. These are two groups of people that moved into this region of the world roughly around the same time, and they're trying to occupy the same territory roughly, and so they find themselves at war a fair amount. And this is another episode in that story of these two nations squabbling with each other. And so, as Saul has done before, he leads the Israelite army off into battle. And the armies meet, like we've read, they draw up their battle lines on either side of this valley. And this valley is key territory uh, for travel and trade. If you've got control of this valley, you've got access to farmland along the coast, you've got access to grazing land for your flocks within this valley. And so both armies want to have this territory, and, and for that reason, they don't get too aggressive going into the battle. They, they settle into a waiting game. Neither side wants to give up their position of the high ground. If you go down into the valley, then you have to fight back uphill. The army that's, up, that's at the top of the hill is at an advantage, so neither side wants to get in the middle of this. And they're sitting here waiting to see who's going to blink first. And one person that can't stand this waiting is Goliath. And so he comes out to challenge the Israelites. 
Uh, He says, instead of wasting our time sitting here staring at each other, we could each put forward one champion. Whoever wins that duel wins the battle. And this is a bold challenge, obviously, but Goliath is confident in himself. The text says, depending on how you read the original language, he's somewhere between seven and nine feet tall. So even on the short side of things, he's he's a tall guy. Uh, The text says that just his armor weighs 125 pounds. Just the tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds. He is a mountain of a man asking for a fight, and no one in the Israelite ranks wants to step up. I mean, that would seem like signing your own death warrant. I mean, why would anyone want to do this? Well, really the only good reason would be for theological reasons. War in the ancient world is always an extension of theology. And we tend to lose sight of that because that's not how global conflicts work in our world today. But in the ancient world, every time two nations go to battle, it is ultimately a battle between the gods that those two nations worship. And both nations would view it that if we go to battle and whichever side is victorious, it is a testament that our God must be more powerful than the God of that other nation. And Goliath is confident in himself, and he's confident in the gods that he worships. If you notice there, he defies the armies of Israel, he defies the armies of the living God. He thinks himself and the gods that he worships more strong, stronger than the God of Israel. So we have Goliath and no one from Israel willing to step up to fight him. And obviously we know where this story is going. We've already talked about that this morning. But at this point, if we're sitting there in the Israelite ranks, maybe we're thinking that if anyone is going to step up to fight Goliath, it should be Saul. You might remember a few chapters ago when King Saul was anointed to be the first king over Israel, one of the key qualifications that was given for him as to why he should be king was that he was a head taller than everyone else. So if anyone is going to face a giant, maybe it's the closest thing to a giant that the Israelites have. Maybe it should be Saul because in 1 Samuel 9, 16, in the midst of him becoming king, God says to Samuel that one of the things Saul is going to do is defeat the Philistines. Maybe it should be Saul because in the midst of this speech from Goliath that we've just read, there in verse 8, Goliath calls out Saul by name. But instead... King Saul, along with the rest of the army, is hiding in fear. It would seem that this army is powerless before Goliath, at least from one perspective. But when David shows up, we're introduced to a new perspective. Picking up in verse 12, where we're introduced to David, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. 
David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. For 40 days now, we have had this routine of Goliath going out in the morning and evening, challenging Israel to put forth a champion to fight him, and nothing happens. I mean, this routine is pretty set in by the time David shows up. David's too young to be in the military at this point. He's left out of the military just like how he was left out of the anointing ceremony that Rick walked us through last week. But he's sent by his father, Jesse, to deliver supplies to his older brother. He's essentially the ancient equivalent of a DoorDash driver at this point. Uh, He seems eager for the trip, apparently, because he gets up early in the morning. By the time he gets to the camp, it's not a short journey from his home to where the army is camped, but he gets there enough that he can see them taking up their positions, which they would do first thing in the morning. He wants to see the action. It doesn't seem like he shows up wanting to get in the middle of things. He just wants to see what is going on, and so he delivers the supplies. But before he can head home, Goliath comes out and begins this daily routine. Picking up in verse 23, it says, As David was, was talking with them, the, other, the, the soldiers there, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asks the men standing near him, what what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, well, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep out in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. Everyone else is standing around, wishing someone would do something about Goliath, dreaming about the rewards that are rumored to be on the way for whoever defeats him. And David wonders why no one will stand up to someone who has been defying the armies of the living God. David has a different perspective on this situation than everyone else around him, Israelite or Philistine. Everyone else, including Saul, sees the taunts of an unstoppable giant. David sees a fool who thinks he can stand up against God. And this even gets David's older brother riled up, which jumps out at me, but maybe just because I'm the oldest in my family. A few weeks ago at Pine Haven, I was teaching a class at 9th and 10th grade camp on the life of David, and every day I taught this lesson, we would get to this point in the story, and I would ask all the kids how many of them were older siblings, and you know, about half of them or so would put their hands up, and I asked them how they feel when their younger sibling gets a little conceited, a little cocky, and all of them said it annoyed them, which just seems to be a common trait across humanity, I guess. And, and I think that's maybe a part of what's going on with Eliab here as he, as he gets on to David, but it seems to be a little more than that. It's maybe jealousy. 
Because if you remember in the passage we looked at last week, Eliab's the oldest. If anyone in Jesse's family should be anointed to be the next king over Israel, it should probably be him. And yet God rejected him and every single one of his brothers except the youngest, David. This youngest child, whose only qualification seems to be that he spends his days wandering in the wilderness with sheep, is apparently going to be the next king of Israel. And now he wanders into the camp. We've been out here for 40 days doing everything we're supposed to be doing as good soldiers of the king, and now David's going to wander in and tell us how we should be doing things? And yet David's motives seem pure. Uh, The disconnect between these two brothers seems to be uh, that while Eliab is looking at Goliath as an insurmountable foe, just like everyone else, David is looking at it with the perspective of God. And those two different perspectives start to come out more as David is brought before Saul in verse 31. It says, What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. For 40 days, Saul and the rest of his army have accepted Goliath's point of view. But that is not the only perspective available. Uh, One summer when I was in college, I was working at a church camp in Colorado. And one day, I was in charge of leading a team-building activity for the high school camp we had going on that week. We had these uh, one-foot-by-one-foot wooden squares and the kids, were their group of 10 or 12 kids, was supposed to get across the basketball court uh, by only stepping on those, those squares. So you got to work together, get everybody across. If anyone falls off, you got to start over, things like that. And I had done that with a few groups, and everything had gone well. It had gone smoothly. I'd constructed this whole narrative. We were outside, and, and I said, you know, th- there's been a terrible tragedy. The mountain is actually a volcano. It's exploded. There's lava running down. The only way you can get across to the other side of this lava river is with these blocks of wood, and you've got to get everyone across in one piece. If you fall off, you're going to be burned up and things like that. I thought it was a great story. And, and we get to about the third or fourth group, and I'm going through the spiel and, and how it all works, and one of the kids says, you're just making all that up. I guess uh, this is fine. I could walk across this basketball court right now. What are you talking about? And I was, you know, and, and he was just giving me a hard time. And I was trying to go back and forth with him for a little bit. And I finally, uh, he just wouldn't let it go. And so I finally said, look, we all know. Let, we all know this isn't real. I just need you to pretend with me for like two minutes. 
And then we can start doing this, uh, this, this game to take up some time before lunch. He uh, refused to accept my premise, my perspective, on what reality was in that moment. And if I can draw that back to this story, that is what David is doing with Goliath. So far, everyone has agreed on both sides that, that, that this battle will ultimately make the will of the gods known. But so far, they've assumed that, that what they could see made that will pretty clear. Uh, and we do the same thing. Uh, you might ask God to reveal his will. You know, you might be looking at applying for a new job and ask God to reveal his will to you about that. And if you get a call saying, hey, we've decided to go with someone else, you, you would maybe conclude, well, that it must not be God's will for me to take that job. And so far for 40 days, the Israelite army has been looking at Goliath and has said, well, if this battle is a battle between the gods, we don't stand a chance against Goliath. So our God must not be strong enough for this battle. And David disagrees because of what he knows about his God. He, he knows that the God of Israel is not like the gods of the other nations who are powerful in some places and some areas of life, but not all of them. He knows that he is the one true God, that he rules over all things. And David knows that because he's experienced it in the wilderness. And by defying God and his people, Goliath has set himself up just as another one of these dumb animals that David can strike down. Not because David's of some mighty warrior, some unstoppable force, but because of who God is. David's not going to win this battle because he's an elite fighting force, although he's good with a sling. He's going to win this battle because he understands who God is, even if no one else does. And King Saul doesn't seem to think this is a great idea, but David's the only one willing to volunteer to go into battle, and so we might as well send him, I guess. And yet, if you notice, Saul is still thinking that David's chances are purely tied up in his own abilities. And for that reason, Saul tries to help him by putting his own armor on him. He seems to think that if this is just David versus Goliath, then David needs all the help he's going to get. So maybe if I put my royal armor on him, he'll be a little more secure. And maybe I'll get lucky, and if he's successful, people will get confused and see the royal armor and think I'm the one that's actually won the battle. But David rejects all that. Not because he's too little to be able to fit in the king's armor, but because he doesn't need it. Uh, this isn't a battle about David. This is a battle about the one true God demonstrating that he is the one true God. David doesn't need the protection of Saul when he has the protection of God. There's no glory for the king to take because God is fighting the battle. And Saul doesn't understand that, which means that he has, without knowing it, Put the royal armor on the one who will take his place as king. And the reason why David will take Saul's place as king is because David knows who God is and Saul doesn't. David goes into this battle knowing he has all the help he will ever need when Saul thinks he needs all the help that he can get. God is on David's side and therefore he needs nothing else. And as I look at that contrast between David and Saul right there in that moment, Saul trying to help David out and put his armor on him, and David's saying, no, I have God, I, need, I have all I need. I can't help but think about how often I'm guilty of taking Saul's perspective instead of David's. And my guess is I'm not alone. 
I mean, you're in church, so you shouldn't lie. We might not have a giant standing before us wanting us to go into battle against him, but we have circumstances that we can see very often, and we have a God that we cannot. And in those moments, human nature tends to pay more attention to the thing that we can see right in front of us instead of the God who we do not see. We worry more about our bank account numbers because we can see them, they're right in front of us, and it's not enough when we have a God that we cannot see who has promised to always give us what we need. We worry about the state of the world around us because we can see it right in front of us. It's very real every time I turn on the news and we forget about the God we cannot see who has said he will never leave us or forsake us. We worry about sickness because it's right here, it's right in front of me or my loved one instead of trusting in the God who has knitted us together in our mother's womb and sustains every breath we take. And when we do that, we are like Saul, in our tent, in fear, wondering if maybe I need to contribute my own armor to the cause, because if not, I don't know what's going to happen, instead of trusting in the one true God. Instead of fighting on our terms, the difference here is that David fights on God's terms. And experiences God's victory in this last scene, picking up at verse 41. It says, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. This part wasn't read when I was taught this in Sunday school as a child. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching, out, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. These two different perspectives that have been running throughout this entire story come clashing together on the battlefield. Goliath's perspective says he is a giant, David's a shepherd boy, and he is offended that the Israelites would think this is a worthy opponent to him. And yet David's also confident, but for very different reasons. 
Goliath's confident because he's a giant covered in armor with a shield bearer in front of him. David is confident because he knows the God of Israel. For the last 40 days, everyone has been accepting Goliath's story that his size and his armor and his strength is all that matters. David sees himself as more than capable, but again, it's for theological reasons. David rejects Goliath's narrative, not because he's bigger or stronger or more skilled than Goliath is, but because he knows the God who has delivered him before will deliver him again. He doesn't trust that God's going to deliver him because he's really great, because he prayed the right prayer or anything like that. He knows God's going to deliver him for God's own sake. This battle's not about David. This battle's not about Goliath. This battle is about the glory of God. Goliath has been proclaiming for 40 days that he and his gods are more powerful than the God of Israel, and David is not standing for it. Saul, the Israelites, Goliath, and the Philistines are about to learn who the one true God really is. And that's the point of this story, just like every other story of our Bible. God called his people to reflect his glory, and David will not stand for Goliath mocking that purpose. He will not stand for his fellow Israelites refusing to stand up for that purpose. David doesn't go into this battle because he's concerned about winning glory for himself. David doesn't go into this battle because he's concerned with protecting his homeland. He's not concerned with ensuring the safety of his family or his city or his community. He's concerned about the glory of God, and that is what makes David different from Saul. Saul looked out and saw a warrior that he couldn't take in a fight, and so he hid in his tent for a month. David, the man after God's own heart, knew that God had called his people to proclaim who he is to the world, and therefore he rejected the perception that Goliath could not be beaten. He understood who God was and who God had called his people to be, and therefore he did not shy away. He fought God's battle and experienced God's victory. And that's why the text doesn't need to spend time on the battle itself. Because from David's, if we have David's perspective, which we should, well, how else would we expect it to go? David's not victorious because of himself, but because he's concerned with God. And so if I had to summarize it all in a sentence, I think what we see in this story is that fighting God's battles on God's terms brings God's victory. My guess is none of us are going to fight a giant this week. If you do, let's talk after church and we can pray together about it. But we need to ask ourselves if our view of the world is with David's eyes or with Saul's. Because like David, we should fight God's battles on God's terms and look forward to God's victory. We fight God's battle instead of thinking that we can use God for our own cause. God's not a vending machine to be used for our own purposes. He's the one true God who invites us into his purposes. The preacher Tim Keller says that when he was in college, he had to take a music appreciation class, and so he was forced for the class to sit and listen to lots of classical music. So he said, you know, I sat and listened to classical music because I wanted to get a good grade in the class. I wanted to get a good grade in the class so I could graduate. I wanted to graduate so that I could get a good job. Really, at the end of the day, I was listening to classical music so that I could make money. But as he got older, he, he said that he found a shift would happen, and he would go from 
having to li- being forced to listen to classical music to actually enjoying classical music and actually getting to a point where he would be willing to pay a fair amount of money to go and hear a symphony perform that same music, the music that when he was in college he thought he had to listen to because he wanted to make money one day, became something he was willing to freely and generously give to to be able to hear it. And if we come to God because we think if we do, it will help us get ahead in our career or improve our kids or help our reputation or give us some tools to break a bad habit, we're coming to God wanting to use him for our own sake. We're looking at God as if he is a means to our own ends, and and that's not who our God is. If that is your thinking, first off, I am glad you are here this morning. I'm not trying to scare you off or anything like that, but I hope you know that God wants so much more for you than your own goals. Saul and the Israelites assumed that God was there to help them in their own efforts. And against Goliath, they did not think he could make a difference. David saw God as the end itself, and therefore he stepped into battle. And that's why he was victorious. If we come to God wanting him to do things for us or help us out in the agenda we already have in place, we're going to miss out. But if we seek his glory, we will find life with him. And so we fight God's battles. And we fight those battles on God's terms because he is not a God who will be manipulated. He's not a God that we can get to do what we want if we pray the right prayer. He is a God that calls us to trust in him and he promises us life when we do. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you might know there are these four children that have stumbled into this magical world of Narnia that's being ruled by the White Witch, but they're being told by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are beavers if you can't tell, that, that Aslan, the true king of Narnia, is on his way, and Aslan is a lion, and he is going to come and make everything right. And as they're being told this, one of the, one of the children, Susan, asks, well, is, is he a tame lion? Because I think, I think meeting a lion might be might be a little scary. Is, is Aslan safe? And to that, Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Church, we do not have a safe God. But we have a good God. One who is the true king of all. So my plea is to stop trying to use him for your purposes when he wants to lead you into his. And as we do that, we look forward to God's victory. Uh, The story of David and Goliath, our story, the story of the entire universe, it ends with God's victory. So we should never take our eyes off that end. We don't concern ourselves with the glory of God ahead of our own because God is some tyrant demanding it of us. We do it because he's the one true God and his way is the life we were created to live. So when life is going well and when it is not, we seek God's glory. Whatever it might be. And that might mean we have sin we need to repent of. It might mean we need to confess to God that our approach has been to do what we want instead of what he wants. When we do that, he meets us in our confession to heal us and to bring us life. Maybe we need to ask God for wisdom to know how to move forward. And when we do that, he has promised us that when we ask for wisdom, he gives it generously. Whatever it is that you need to take that next step and walk 
in your walk with Jesus. We are here. We would love to meet you at the Welcome Center to talk, to pray with you, to walk alongside you, to seek God's glory in your life so that you can experience God's victory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have come to us so that we might have life. You have not abandoned us even when we had wandered away from you. You have not left us as orphans, but you have come to us in your son, Jesus, who, who came to, to stand in our place against the enemy of sin and death. I, Jesus came to be a better David, to take on a seemingly insurmountable foe on our behalf so that we might be set free. So we thank you for that. And God, as we respond to that in every area of our lives, we ask for, for your grace, because we are imperfect people who sin and go our own way and try to do what we think is best when we should be seeking what you have said is best. We ask for your wisdom, because we are imperfect people and don't always know the best way forward, and we need you to meet us in that and help us walk more deeply with you. And in all things, God, we need you. We need your perspective on how to live in the world. We need your, your life to sustain us each day. So help us to grow in our dependence on you, uh, to look at the world the way that you look at it, so that we might live with hope looking forward to the day when Christ returns to make all things new. We ask all this in his name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.